Hi, I'm Dave Palmer, director of the Annex, and I was just really grateful to get to be with you this morning. And I know most of you didn't have a choice about whether or not today was Annex Sunday, but um, thanks for being here anyway. I hope that it's a positive experience. Um, one, uh, what we call congregational announcement, or just really sweet piece of news, is that um, the, the woman that was just on stage, who is new to our team in the last six months as an assistant director, as of yesterday, is now engaged to marriage. <laughs> to Cody Willega. So we're really pumped for Kyle's. Um, Cody uh, volunteers with youth at another church in the Boulder community, and so that's, that's why he's not here, I'm sure, yeah. Either that or he's helping someone in misfortune, because that's the sort of guy he is, right? I mean, like literally, yeah. Anyway, we're really grateful to have Kelsey on our team and really grateful for that um, really cool piece of good news. We are in a time, uh, I don't know how different it is from any other point in history, but it sure feels like we're in this space where uh, we share so many different, or don't share, we're so many, there's so many different divergent worldviews, right? The way we think uh, between uh, parties or classes or um, uh, cultures, especially here in the country, um, these worldviews feel so divergent and can often be so divisive. And yet, there is one driving worldview that all of us share, no matter who we are or where we are in this world. There is one driving worldview that all of us as humans share, and that is that a central goal that we care deeply about and that motivates so much what we do is that we want our lives to work out for ourselves. Right? We all want our lives to work out. Like, who wakes up in the morning and thinks, gosh, today's a day where I don't care if things are going to be okay or not? No, no. We all want things to be okay. I mean, that's like baseline. And I think all of us, at some level, are motivated. If there is the opportunity for us to get better or best in anything that we believe will be benefit us and make our lives better or best, we will say yes to it. We want our lives to be good, to work out, to be best. And here's what's awesome. God feels you on that. He's, he's totally on board. This is also what God wants for us. In this series, we've called Long Story Short. Chapter one goes, God created all things, including me and you. And when he created us, humans, he called us beloved. And he intended from the very beginning to share with us as his creation made in his image the very best of his life so that we also could live the greatness of what he lives, that we would have good lives, that we'd be okay, better than okay, that we would have a great life. That is what God created us for. And I, my guess is if you're like me and you hear that, your first filter you hear that through is one of skepticism. Dude, the only people that are saying that these days are people that are in nice suits that have really expensive churches and fly in helicopters, right? Like, what are you talking about? We live in such a world of scarcity and fear. How could God possibly desire that for us? But that is chapter one. That is chapter one of the story. And think about how divergent that story is from a worldview, especially when that story was first told by the Israelites. The rest of the stories that were being told about creation went something like this. The gods were a lot like us. They just wanted to be on top. 
They were prideful. They argued with each other. And humans were just sort of the result of some sort of conflict or some sort of affair between two gods. And, and out of the chaos, we entered into the world and were just sort of pawns in somebody else's power game. That just sounds what it's like to be human, doesn't it? That was a common worldview. Today, the common worldview is we just happen to be here. We're like a blip in this like crazy cosmic history of molecules working out into living beings, and we have reason and feelings for whatever reason for now, and someday we'll change into something else, but for now this is what it is. There's no meaning to it. Just, just do you. Make your life as okay as you can. Our story starts with an incredible chapter that frankly, I think if any human really understood what chapter one was about, we would want it to be true. We are not an accident. We are created with a, out of a loving God who wants the absolute best. He intended to share the best of what he's got with us. That's a pretty good start to a story. Chapter two goes like this. Adam and Eve, first couple humans, were just like us. They looked around, they summed up things, and they thought, I think I might be able to do better. I think I might be able to do better. Like if I open up my options and kind of navigate and figure out my own way to do life, I think I can do better than best. And the result of that was worse, actually, and we see that really clearly. Like Adam and Eve's life literally falls apart relationships start to fall apart. Their, their own frailty as humans, uh, they, they become frail for the first time, and, and their life falls apart. The first 11 chapters of the Bible, past chap, the, the creation narrative, is a dense story of the sadness of humans choosing their own best. It is a wildly depressing part of the Bible when you really read it. Everything falls apart. God intended for all this goodness Humans decided they could do better, and what they did was way worse. A tragedy, really. And actually, when you read the Bible, I just, a warning out there, if you've never read the Bible before, it is a terrifying book, really. We gave them to our third graders. If your third grader just got a book, crash helmets, please, and you read the Bible first, because there is a lot of disturbing stuff in the Bible. I'm not joking. It is the most disturbing book I've ever read, and it's disturbing because it pulls no punches about telling the story of how things work out for people when we choose our own best. It's terrifying. But God does not give up on his mission. He does not give up on his mission for his creation to know life in him and for, him, for them to have the best. And so this is what he chooses. He chooses what I think is kind of a cool and sort of bizarre method. Out of all of the people on earth, all of them were screw-ups. No one was deserving. All of them screw-ups. He picks this guy, Abraham, that worshiped a bunch of random gods, and he brings them to this different place, and he speaks to him, and he says, hey, I know you're old. I know you don't have kids, but you know what's crazy is you're going to have a huge family. Doesn't make a lot of sense. He has a huge family. God provides him in a crazy way and promises him that his huge family would have a place to live, and that God would bless his family and that they would know this best life that they were intended for. Eventually, they end up in Egypt, and so this family becomes this oppressed, 
people group. Imagine this. God chooses a tribe, a group of people who were an enslaved group of people. You know, if I was picking my A-team to like restore the attention of creation, I would have picked the best and the brightest, not the enslaved folks in Egypt, but that's who he picks, and he brings them out of Egypt. It's crazy. The, the, The narratives are literally wild. God brings them out by his own power out of Egypt. This group of slaves know freedom for the first time. They couldn't have dreamt of what it was like to be free, and here they are standing in land, where they are not slaves. And not just that, he brings them out, but God gives them concrete ways, a law, a new way of life where they could know what right and wrong was, where they could live in a a society, in a community where there was structure, where everyone had a chance to thrive, to be whole, and to live best life. And we call that the law of Moses or the Torah. And you'll read it and you'll think, wow, this is some wacky stuff. God gets very culturally contextual in terms of the what he gives them. It works really great for this tribe of people in their context. An amazing gift. And it is impossible to overstate how different, how different the life that God instructs them to live was from the lives the people were living around them. And then God brings them to this edge of this, this promised land, this land called Canaan. He brings them to this land and he says, this is the place that will be your home and I will provide security. You will know that you are my beloved and this is the place where you are going to thrive. He also says this, as you're looking into this land, you'll notice that there are seven kingdoms that that, that exist here and these are strong kings this land is choice, so if these people are in this land, that means that they, they're, they're, on, they're on the top of the top. But I actually am going to go before you and wipe out this, this entire community in this land. That's sobering stuff. Like I said, put your crash helmets on when you're reading scripture. And God gives two rationale for why this is going to happen. The first rationale is this, that through Israel's conquest of this land, God was going to bring judgment on a group of people who had so desecrated the vision that he had for humanity by by destroying their own lives and other people's lives. I don't want to, well, maybe I'll get in a little bit into the gritty details. The lowlights of some of the things that the folks in Canaan embraced included um, sex cults where um, acts of, uh, sexual acts were performed in a way that would appall people even in the 21st century in America. As well, as well as child sacrifice. This was, a, this was a, a, what I think anyone today would objectively say a morally corrupt society. So God has said, I'm going to show you my justice, that I actually care that this is happening. It is not okay. And the Israelites, mind you, must have felt very soberly about this because they too have participated in many of these things. And God also, the other rationale is, he wanted to create a space where his new community could work things out without the influence of other communities that had different ways of living. We are talking about a group of people that have not had a home for four and a half centuries. These are a people that have adopted whatever was around them just to survive. They are finding a place that is home for the first time. They need shelter and protection. And so God says, you need to be just with me. 
We're going in isolation, all right? So those are the two rationality gifts. The first time, there's two times that the nation of Israel comes up to the edge of the promised land. The first time they get to the edge of the promised land, they send 12 spies in. 10 of them come back and say, you wouldn't believe the size of the grapes. Actually, all 12 said that. You wouldn't believe the size of the grapes. 10 of them were like, you also wouldn't believe the size of the humans in there. All the Israelites looked like me, skinny, but probably a, a, a foot shorter. They've been in the desert for a while, and they've also been slaves. They're not very well nutritioned, perhaps. I don't know. But they felt very small compared to these people. And they looked in, and they saw a, a strong people. There's no way. There's no way this could be our place, or we could ever beat these folks. And they, in fact, they say, we want to go back to Egypt. Wow, what a vision for your future. Anyway, so instead of Egypt, God's like, we're taking you on a 40-year timeout into the desert. I have some work to do, apparently. Um, and they come back, and they get to the edge of the promised land, and, um, and they look into the land, and God says, again, we're doing this. Trust me. That's the whole key to this thing. Trust me. This is going to be your home. So God goes before them, and leads them through a remarkable series of very highly unlikely victories against superior armies and kingdoms. And you can read about it in the book of Joshua. Really remarkable stuff. And, uh, uh, you know, perhaps you've learned about some of these stories in Sunday school. Uh, I, I would also mind you, Crash Helmets, please. This is a deeply violent book, perhaps one of the most. Judges, I would say, might be the most, but man, this is, this is real warfare. They went from having one house on Mediterranean Avenue. You know that destitute property in Monopoly? You know the one I'm talking about? The one, one pace off of go? Who wants Mediterranean Avenue? What a waste of time. You get $2 of rent if somebody lands on you, right? Even if you have four houses or a hotel, it's a joke, right? That was Israel. At the end of the whole thing, they are sitting pretty, owning Pike Place, no, I'm from Seattle, Park Place and Boardwalk with hotels, right? An incredible, incredible change of fortune. And at the end of at the book of Joshua, here's Israel with Pike Park, I can't even get out, I'm, I'm so Seattle, Park Place and Boardwalk. Here they are with incredible property, unbelievable victory, and Joshua, this great military leader, the, the one that led um, uh, uh, the, the, the military uh, efforts, uh, is at the end of his life in this newly conquered land. I mean, imagine the feeling, right? Home for the first time. And not only home, it's like really good land, right? Really good stuff. And at the end of his life, Joshua has a few things and a big question to ask the people. And so he gathers all of the important influencers in the nation of Israel, so the patriarchs, the religious leaders, and the military leaders, and they're all there, and they come to this convention, and, and, and Joshua speaks, and talk about a revered guy. Oof. When Joshua was, speaks, people listen, and he said this. He told them their stories. He said this, long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshiped other gods. He was childless, and God gave him a family and a promise of land, of blessing. It didn't make any sense, but he did it. And then God said, then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out of Egypt. 
you experienced freedom in a way that you could not have imagined possible. And then you lived in the wilderness for a long time. And then you crossed the Jordan River and came to Jericho in the Promised Land. And the seven kingdoms that were here before are no longer here. He said this, you did not do it with your own sword or bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil, in cities on which you did not build, and you live in them and eat from the vineyards and the olive groves that you did not plant. God just gave us park place and boardwalk. You didn't work your way up the monopoly ladder. And then this is how he concludes his speech. He says this, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord, says Joshua. You've seen what God can do. You've seen it. You were witness to it. And now you are standing in the witness, the testimony of what God can do. This land that is now ours, in the vineyards we didn't plant, in the cities we didn't build. Here we are. Do you trust? Do you trust that God, this God, is the one that makes sure that things are okay for you? Do you trust that God is the one that can make the best life for you? Do you trust that? Or do you think you need other options? Do you think you need other options? You choose what you're going to do. I love that. It's not just... He doesn't just say, you should do this. He's like, no, no, no. You're going to make a decision. Who are you going to choose? And all the people, this is how they answer. All the people say this. Yeah, dude, Joshua, you're so right. Isn't it so awesome what God did for us? Like, I mean, really, this is such a sweet deal being here in in our new land. This is so good. And this is how, and Joshua doesn't pat him on the back. This is how he follows up. He says this. Now then, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what Joshua knew about the people that were in front of him. When you go on a business trip, you bring the most important things that you have, right? The things that are essential to living. I don't know what you bring on trips, but I'll tell you what these folks brought on their trip. They're essential idols. Certainly they would have been packing this one. This is Asherah, the fertility goddess. Now listen, if you live in an agrarian society, fertility is really important. Not only is it important to have lots of kids, that's a good thing, helps to run the family farm, but you also need fertility for for good crops and things. And so um, if you're a good Canaanite, uh, you absolutely knew that Asherah is the one that hooks it up. No doubt. And, you know, if you're also a farmer, it's important that you worship Baal because Baal takes care of the weather and you don't want to be on Baal's bad side because bad weather ain't good. Good weather's good, especially if you're in an agrarian society, right? Amen? If you're a farmer out there, come on. 
Whew. So, these folks, in their back pocket, perhaps in their luggage, in their hotel room, literally had these idols. And, and Joshua was saying, hey, let's just be honest. This isn't just like, you know, the, like the, the end of the, you know, Saturday night of a Christian retreat where we all feel really good. Let's just be honest about what we actually are doing here. These are the gods that we worship. And it seems ridiculous, doesn't it? I mean, in light of the story, right, how often have you thought, God, if you just would do all these things, like if you'd just give me a you know, more financial security. Like, my marriage would just be better. My, my, um, my, my college experience would just be better. More friends or, or more success in the academic world or, uh, you know, to have children. Well, whatever it is, all these good things. If you just give me more, then I'd totally be down to just praise you and follow you. Now, here is a group of people who have literally had their pants blessed right off of them, right? Like, they have it made in the shade better than any group of people at any moment. And they still have these gods in their pocket. But why? Why, why would they turn to idols? Why would they pack Asher around? Why would they pack Baal around? Why would they do that? Because here's the great thing about idols. Let's just be honest about what's great about idols. Idols promise results that we can control. Idols promise results that we can control. What if God isn't actually reliable? Like, we've all been in relationships, right? We, we're just kind of born into them. You know, we're kind of stuck with them, sort of. And the best people we know are mostly reliable. We all have trust issues, right, when it comes to relationships. Man, if you, if you don't have trust issues when it comes to relationships, you know, you're the first one that can leave today because you're good. I don't know, whatever. Is God reliable? I don't know. That's a good question. But what about this? What if God's best doesn't actually seem to be the best option? What if there are other things that just seem like they're better than living this God life? Like, I'm super interested in making sure that I can go on great vacations with my family. Anyone else like that? I, I, vacation's essential, and especially a vacation to an ocean with surfable waves. For me, that's a, that's a no-brainer. Uh, I'm not essential. And, and so, I don't know, whatever I got to do to make sure I can do that, you know, um, uh, what if God's best isn't better than other options? What if God doesn't do what I want him to do for me when I want him to do it? I was convinced I was going to get into this university, but I didn't. What kind of God is that? That was going to be a great school to go to. I was convinced that I was going to have four children. We only have two. What kind of God is that? Forty years in the desert? What kind of God is that? Have you seen my life? It's not what I thought it was going to be. What if God doesn't do what I want him to do for me when I want him to do it? And then the promise of idols. Idols say, 
if you just do what I say, you can get what you want when you want it. And so we pack around idols too. One of my absolute favorites, because I'm always wondering, am I going to starve to death or die on the street before I die, in old, hopefully old age? You know, so money. Everybody needs money, I'll tell you what. So uh, first step is to get a great education. You know, you're probably not going to have a lot of financial security if you don't get the right education. So I went to the University of Washington. I'm convinced that's the golden ticket uh, for life. Um, purple and gold ticket, actually. Uh, thanks. Um, also, we all know, let's just be totally honest, if you want to make sure that you are not destitute by the end of your life, saving early is really the way to go. So my Roth IRA, I'll tell you what, is what keeps me asleep at night. And so here's my monthly statement uh, from RBC. You know, I've always wondered too, it's like, am I really loved? Am I really accepted? Like, do I really matter? Uh, you know, am I a lovable guy? So I found, actually, I'll tell you what, I found the most beautiful woman I could possibly find and somehow convinced her to marry me. Really remarkable stuff. And um, I think it was a, uh, it was a bad joke uh, on her. Um, but, you know, an incredible family. And then, you know, once she figures out who I am, we'll just procreate, and then we can have these humans that just think we're the best, right? My human uh, thinks that I'm so good that he wants to see me in the middle of the night just to say hi. Isn't that wonderful? Um, and we're going to have another one in 10 days, according to the medical professionals, which means we'll have two humans that are just so excited to see us any hour of the day. Right? Amen, Christophe, you know what I'm saying? Um, and how affirming, right? I mean, if I can just keep my family life together, then, like, I'm sure I'm good. And, you know, winning. Nobody likes a loser. Let me tell you what. When was the last time you read history about losers? Ha! Winners write history, and winners are the significant ones in life. You know, when I show up to work, I want to win. When I play a board game, I want to win. When my team plays football on Saturday, we better win. You know what I'm saying? Amen. Five and no buffs. Let's go. <laughs> winning. Winning. Wow. What, winning. What incredible meaning and value I get by being a winner and being successful. Now, you might be th saying, yeah, Dave, what's the matter with being 5-0? and oh? Well, if you're the Buffs, nothing. That's great. Um, or any team, really. Um, or what's the matter with marriage? I mean, marriage is so good. Um, and, and education, I mean, especially from the University of Washington. And um, investing, uh, obviously, that makes a ton of sense, right? Like, you've got to invest. Uh, these are all good things. Well, you know what else is a good thing? Good weather and fertility. Those are good things. Who, who doesn't want good weather? I mean, really, who doesn't want good weather? That's why some of you moved from Chicago to here. <laughs> and who also doesn't want fertility? That's all, that's all good. But these things, these things become idols for us. When two things happen, one, when they become the things or the thing that holds our life together. The thing that holds our life together. Our family, our perfect family, our perfect marriage, our kids having their life and their act together. Our nice house, perfectly decorated for every season. When those things, when that falls apart, does your life fall apart? 
No, that's fair. I can do without the Halloween decorations too. Um, <laughs> my wife and I are an understanding about that, I think. Um, your 401k, your savings, what if they just disappeared? Who would you be? Or all of the successes that you measure yourself by compared to your peers? Your work success, your financial success, how good of a Christian you might be, your correct doctrine. If all of that were to disappear, who would you be? What's holding you together? That's one way to know if it's an idol. The second way is this. We are willing to do whatever it takes to maintain a good standing with that idol, that thing, to receive its benefit. Now, of course, I can work through the nights and through the weekends. No problem. It doesn't matter if it totally affects my family because what's most important is that I'm successful in my job. I really, really need my kids to turn out well. And I need them to be a doctor, specifically a successful, high-paying doctor because that's best for their life. Or a lawyer, that's cool too. Whatever pays at least six figures. And I'll do whatever it takes for my kids to accomplish my dream for their life. And if that doesn't happen, well, we'll do whatever it takes. The false promise of idols, it promises that we can control the outcome, but we end up selling our soul in the meantime. And the results, the fruit of these aspirations, this slavery, is not life. It isn't better. And as our world spin cycles around the false promises of idols, God has not given up on his mission, his clear mission of us having the best, us having a real life that's good. Not on false promises, but on real promises. And the invitation has never been clearer or better than it is in the person of Jesus Christ. God has never been clearer, in my opinion, better in presenting to us this invitation, this mission, this desire for us to have the best. Jesus was extraordinary. He did extraordinary things and he taught extraordinary things. And this is some of the stuff he taught. You cannot serve two masters. Quit kidding yourself. That's what Joshua was saying. Don't kid yourself. I know what's in your suitcase. Choose God or the idols, but you can't do both. That's exactly what Jesus said. You can't do both. Love one, hate the other. Hate one, love the, the, the other. You can't serve both God and money, Jesus says. That still cuts today, doesn't it? And then he says this, God knows all of you are freaking out that you will not have enough. There won't be enough food on the table, enough clothes to wear. And we're talking, Jesus is speaking to a um, uh, Jesus is speaking to a group of people who literally are poor, abjectly poor. Half of the people in the first century were people who did not know where their food would come from the next day. And Jesus says, your heavenly father knows that and he will come through and take care of you. So don't worry about that stuff. It must have been wild to believe that. And then, and it's difficult for us, even though we seem to have plenty. And then he finishes this incredible message by saying this, there are two kinds of people. There are those that do what they want to do. They hear the word of God and say, I can do it better. 
I'll build my life the way I want to build my life. And they build their house on sand. And when the realities of life come against that house, the house does not stand. It is not better. Their gods fail. The second sort of person is the person that hears the invitation of God, the words of Jesus, and takes seriously what that life looks like and does the things that he says and builds their life of trust that this is the way, the best way for me to live my life. And when the realities of life strike that that house built on rock, it does not break. There is thriving and security and value and meaning. That's what Jesus says. Our vision is for CU students to know life in Jesus by experiencing the best of college. We put it everywhere. It's on our bus, it's on our stickers, everywhere. Best of college. And we believe it to the core of our heart that the gospel of Jesus Christ is our absolute best option. That Jesus Christ is not coming to us saying this is something you ought to consider because it's pretty good. Jesus is saying this is the only way forward to satisfy the desire that you have. All of the other things in life will disappoint. And boy, have we tasted disappointment. But I know what thriving is. I know what you were made for. And I want so desperately, so desperately for you to have that, to know it, to believe it, and to live it, that I am willing to put my entire life on the line to deal with the mess that you created so that you can know wholeness again. That's the best of college. That's the best of life. That's for you and for me and for CU. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you uh, for not leaving us to our own devices, for not letting us um, live as um, we would choose to live without you. Thank you for the incredible gift of Jesus that affirms in all the ways that you care deeply for us, that you want the best for us. Lord, there's a lot of mystery in that wisdom that we seek to understand, so help us to trust you one step at a time, knowing as your, that your goodness goes before us and that at every step you care about our welfare more than we care about it. Jesus, uh, we also just pray for our community, especially for CU. 30,000 students, most of them do not know you. Most of them definitely don't know your love and invitation. And we pray that that would change because of something that you do in this place, in this community.